Why did the legacy media get the COVID origins debate so wrong? What does a Chinese-Russia alliance mean? And just how dangerous is Ron DeSantis? We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the sage of authenticity, Woods. Jim Garrity, you are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are the Bonson Group and Brian Garner's new book on grammar. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim Garrity, we had the blockbuster news from the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that the Department of Energy now believes that COVID originated from a Chinese lab. We are not being told why they've concluded this, but my guess is that they finally got around to reading you on COVID origins and what makes sense. And that's why the Department of Energy is finally coming over to Garrity's side. Rich, as much as I would like to believe that, uh, I'm fairly certain that's not the case. Uh, so the Wall Street Journal came out with this news late on you know Sunday, and I you know just kind of glanced at some of the back and forth on Twitter, people arguing about the significance of it. And uh, one of our contributors, Pradeep Shankar, who's a medical doctor, who's been saying the origin of COVID is unknown, and everyone should be open to all the theories. Lab leak is plausible, but not yet proven. And there was some guy who was just giving him endless amounts of grief about this. And one of the contentions was the Department of Energy has no relevant knowledge or experience or uh, useful information or this, this for this uh, for this investigation. And I looked at that and I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's BS. So I went and I looked and uh, the Wall Street Journal article mentioned that it was part of the Lawrence Livermore National Lab uh, program called Z Division which sounds unbelievably cool. And much like the fictional X-Files, apparently the name it got was because all the other letters of the alphabet were taken. Not no, no, because. Z-Jim's Z, Z kind of been ruined for me by the, the Russian. Uh, yeah, yeah. Russian you know, and people they, might be thinking they, sleep or Ziggy or something like that. But anyway, so this has been going back since the 1960s. And because of the Cold War, we wanted to know everything that was going on with the Soviet nuclear program. And over at Lawrence Livermore, they had some of the best nuclear physicists and, uh, you know, scientific minds in the country. And so they kind of formalized their relationship relationship with the intelligence community. So Z division is technically part of the Department of Energy, but you really should be thinking of it as part of the intelligence community because its primary mission has been counterproliferation, first of nuclear weapons and then expanding into chemical weapons. And yes, biological weapons. One of the biological weapons that we worry about are viruses. And so they've been studying this sort of thing for a long time. And then I went through basically Z division itself is very secretive. Um, I could only find three declassified documents, two of them from the it and then one kind of requesting it to do work. Um, the request was to look into the Pakistani nuclear program back in the 1960s. And in the late 90s, two of their reports were declassified. And when I say declassified, I mean some of the information was declassified. And then there were like whole pages that were just black text that was blacked out. Um, and there are historians who work with this stuff who are observing that like compared to the CIA, which has declassified a decent number of its documents like a generation later, um, Z Division has declassified very little of what it's ever actually done. So I, honest to God, they make the CIA look chatty. Um, but so you look at this, like the rest of Lawrence Livermore has done a lot of, you know, revealed a great deal of what they do in terms of fighting in, you know, 
discerning, investigating uh, biological weapons. Um, the anthrax mailings, Lawrence Livermore was part of the investigative team. Uh, when we were spending, sending inspectors over to Iraq when Saddam Hussein was running there to look over their WMD programs, Lawrence Livermore scientists were part of that team. Um, they were part of the team you know, distributed across the country after 9-11. Uh, when they needed to worry about, there was great concern about the use of biological weapons. They, you know, they developed portable detectors. Uh, they were part of their technology that they did in conjunction with us. Los Alamos was deployed for the Salt Lake City Olympics. In short, the Lawrence Livermore crew has been working with and thinking about biological weapons and how a virus would be contagious for a long, long time. Therefore, they do have relevant expertise and may have uh, something you know very, very useful to say about this this question. The Wall Street Journal article did not say what it was that they encountered, but they said it was something new since the last, you know, I guess it was like, what, late 2021, early 2022, when that uh, official U.S. intelligence community assessment came out that basically was, ah, we don't know. Well, sometime, probably in the last six months or so, this crew over at Lawrence Livermore has found something new that has altered their occasion. Now, we should be, you know, careful not to overstate this. They are saying this with low level of certainty, which mm -hmm. is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Uh, it's not a smoking gun. It is not absolutely determining, but clearly they saw something that was important enough to get them to say, okay, our old assessment of we don't know, you know, 50-50 could be either one. We don't, we have no idea. We don't feel that way anymore. And so whatever it is, it was significant enough to get them to lean in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know what that was. Um, but I think, you know, from the very beginning, there's been this Occam's razor sense of you have a city with not one, but two laboratories that are doing gain-of-function research on coronaviruses found in bats. And lo and behold, you have this terrible outbreak of one that, oh, by the way, really spreads quickly from human to human, really, you know, effectively, much more than the original SARS, much more than MERS or any of these other respiratory diseases that have gone around, almost like it was designed to spread from one human being to another very effectively and quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess from the beginning, it's always been that. I'm always pleased to see the world very slowly shifting more in the direction of points that uh, I've been baking since, you know, April 2020, and thanks to the support of NR, but, you know, you guys have never told me, don't go in this direction. We we have no uh, Chinese we affiliates. You, we, we told you to go in the direction. Absolutely. The contrary, yeah. yeah. We don't have Rich Lowry bobblehead sales to worry about in <laughs> Shanghai or anything like that. So... Um, Noah, you wrote about this, but one one weird aspect of this debate, at least in the abstract, is why is anyone dug in about it, right? Uh, as as Jim was saying, just w w there's a lot we don't know. Everyone should be open to the evidence, but you had kind of the the experts, some of whom were. Um, had had um, motives for denying that the labs had anything to do with it because they they were involved in research at the uh, the Wuhan lab. But otherwise, why wouldn't everyone, including the media, just be open to the idea? Okay, we don't know. Maybe it was a bat. Maybe it was a leak from the lab. Instead, you had uh, at least at the outset first maybe a year or so, certainly in 2020, just the media pouring scorn on this idea and doing kind of the, the classic trope of scientists say, where you get one group of scientists saying something and then you, then you cite them as authoritative without bothering and going and finding the dissenters and dissidents and at least listening listening to them and taking them seriously. And then you had some, uh, you know, former, uh, famously a former New York Times reporter saying, look, maybe maybe there's, there, there's something to this and some others. And then kind of the dam broke and the coverage uh, became a little more neutral. But still, the, the, um, the, the progressives just don't like the idea that it came from a lab. We were talking about before we started recording. 
Stephen Colbert and whoever's doing the Daily Show, uh, Comedy Central now, were mocking the Department of Energy over this. You know, they, they weren't mocking the Wuhan lab or mocking the CCP for perhaps loosing this on the world and then flagrantly lying about it. And it's just, it's very weird. And not mocking the FBI, which has reached a similar conclusion. Mm -hmm. Because to do so would be to align themselves with the political imperatives of the right. And all of this has everything to do with advancing political imperatives. There's two problems with the journalistic enterprise around science generally, but certainly around this. The first is just the capture of scientific journalism by the very select sources that it uses inside uh, science and medicine mm -hmm. um, who feed them very similar conclusions to one another, all of whom have motives that are not just free and open inquiry, but also access and influence. And that limited sourcing gives you the same conclusions. So they don't have access to a lot of these things. You talked about Donald McNeil, New York Times reporter, former New York Times reporter, who after he was no longer a New York Times reporter, wrote on Medium about the degree to which there was so much gatekeeping in this sort of situation that it became a self-reinforcing proposition because the presumed derangement of the lab leak theory's proponents was sort of in evidence because only the crazies would touch it. But only the crazies would touch it because you guys wouldn't touch it. So it was kind of a, a self-perpetuating cycle. And the second is just the cultural and political imperatives to not license the wrong people, not give any credence to the wrong people. And for and some, you know, we've been privy to a lot of this for a long time by people making people in the in the science journalism community making admissions against interests, like Naomi Oreskes, who said, uh, "We all judge messages by the messenger." No, we don't. You're not supposed to. You have a professional obligation to not do that. I mean, maybe we do, but it's a human failure. It's a foible that you're supposed to counteract. You're supposed to be aware of it and to try to compensate for it. And then in the wake of this latest revelation from the Department of Energy, you had folks like CNN contributor Jill Filipovic saying, well, under liberals were understandably on the defense against any theory that seemed to blame China for COVID because Donald Trump was blaming China for COVID. Yeah, and they right. couldn't put themselves on the wrong right side of that. MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan saying something similar, quote, the simple reason why we, so many people were keen to discuss, weren't keen to discuss the lab leak theory is because it was originally conflated by the right with Chinese bioweapon conspiracies. And it continues to be conflated with anti-Fauci conspiracies. You're the conspiracy theorist here. You have erected this weird narrative where people are going to be manipulated into being violent racists by virtue of the fact that you're just addressing and acknowledging your environment. You have so little faith in your fellow Americans that you convince yourselves of the need to maybe not lie to them directly, but at least commit sins of omission to manipulate mm -hmm. them. Yeah. The, the other thing is that Tom Cotton, who you know got slammed at the the outset for just suggesting it might have come from a lab, never said it was a bioweapon. But but part of the critique of him was like, oh, Tom Cotton is saying it was a bioweapon. He never said that. They put words in his mouth um, in that situation and in the in the um, National Guard's situation. Yeah, yeah. Can I say he was advocating yeah. things he never advocated. Rich, can I just jump in here and point out that? Yes, Tom Cotton never said that, and a lot of people are hanging their excuses of, ah, well, look, I think from the very beginning, it was obvious that if it was a bioweapon by the Chinese military, you would not first use it on your own population. Mm -hmm. uh, but the second thing which is worth noting is that there are indications that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was working on bioweapons, and that was one of the reasons for this enormous amount of secrecy around it. And I should point out kind of one complicating wrinkle for those of us who think a lab, li lab leak is more, theory than other, is more likely than other theories 
is that if the possibility exists that it was not a lab leak, but there's something in the Wuhan Institute of Virology that the Chinese government desperately does not want the rest of the world to know about or see. Mm-hmm. And it might be that, in fact, they were doing de- you know, illegal development of biological weapons at an official civilian uh, research facility. And that would explain some of the secrecy of there. So I just want to put that out there as a possibility. What is indisputable is that China's got stuff in there that it doesn't want the rest of the world to see. Yeah, so Charlie, what Noah hit on, the, the Trump aspect of this really loomed large. I went back and went through some of the coverage yesterday for a, a little piece for the, the website. And you know, the New York Times found a way to, to put a negative spin on Trump asking the intelligence agencies just to investigate what were the origins of the leak. That, that itself was presumed to be a bad thing. And you had um, folks at the Chinese lab and the famous infamous Batwoman, uh, you, you had legacy outlets reporting her denials of uh, a, a leak as a, as a serious re- rebuke of Trump and just kind of reporting it straight, like sh- she wasn't self-interested or part of a, a hideous communist regime. I have been struggling for the last couple of days to work out how I should write the piece proposing that pretty much everyone who is deemed an elite is a moron. <laughs> But this case supports that thesis on its own. I mean, leave aside for a minute the total inability of people in positions of responsibility to do their jobs, especially in the press. And ask yourself why the presumption here was ever preferred in the first place. That presumption being that it is somehow racist or xenophobic to believe that this virus escaped from a laboratory, but not racist or xenophobic to believe that it escaped from a wet market. Which of those two things is more at odds with Western culture? Mm-hmm. Which of those two things is more likely to be condemned per se? Is it the existence of an institute of virology or a wet market? Mm-hmm. If you were attempting to other the Chinese, you would talk about the wet market. That is the peculiar institution. Yeah, Charlie, this, I, was really, uh, Charlie I was really struck by this in this, this Colbert uh, segment I mentioned earlier. So he, he made fun of the, the, the wet mark. He's like, oh, okay, it's okay to have pandolin dumplings now and civet fingers or whatever. And everyone laughed. Whereas that would have been, if, if someone else did it in a slightly different context, that would be racist. Um, because he he, uh, um, he he's he wants to pour scorn on the um, uh, on the, the lab leak, you know. Um, so it's, it's fine to make fun of the, the wet market. Right. So the Presumption from which our elite class proceeded was in and of itself inexplicable. So were their rubrics, which, as Noah said, were driven entirely by domestic reflexive habit, were driven by the notion that if a Republican says something, it must be wrong or worse. It must be sinister. The very fact that Donald Trump asked this question, the very fact that Tom Cotton asked this question rendered it an unlikely 
conspiracy theory. I don't understand this. I thought that the appearance John Stewart made on Colbert was perfect when he drew an analogy with a chocolate leak from Hershey. You don't have to know anything about this. You don't have to claim to know anything about this. You don't have to be a virologist. You don't have to be a sinologist. You don't have to know anything about foreign policy to see that it is reasonable to ask whether or not the fact that this virus first became known in the town that houses one of three major virology institutes in the world that were dealing with this sort of virus might be important. But they just can't do it. They just couldn't do it. They had to drag this through domestic politics. And I think that we should take names. I think we should remember who tried to shut down debate. I think we should remember who published condescending fact checks, criticizing anyone who asked these questions. I think we should remember who leveled char charges of racism and xenophobia. Uh, and resolve not to take them seriously next time, which is a long way of saying we should resolve not to take the press seriously next time. So, Jim Garrity, exit question to you. There will be, at some point, a rough consensus about the origins of COVID, yes or no? Yeah, but it's probably a long ways off um, because I think a lot of people saw the pandemic as a Trump story not as a China story. And they're just not interested in a, the geopolitical aspect and potential consequences of China unleashing a virus upon the world that killed officially 6 million and more likely much many more million than that. So uh, Jim, uh, bonus exit just for you. What's your level of confidence that came from a lab in you know, uh, percentage terms, zero, you, you don't really know, 10, uh, 100, you're, you're really totally convinced it's a lab. Uh, depending on my mood on any given day, it can be anywhere from 70 to 90%. Wow. Okay. No, we'll have a consensus at some point. Uh, I'm in, I think I'm inclined towards Jim's point of view and a little bit more so in the direction of, will there be a universally acknowledged origin story? No, I don't think so. There are too many vested interests in ensuring that we do not have definitive conclusions around this thing, commercial and political. Um, so there, there will always be some room to debate. And if there's room enough to debate, then it will remain something of a mystery. Charlie Cook. I think we will have a broadly acknowledged set of facts at which point the key players in the early denials will insist they never said any such thing. Yeah, that, that's kind of what they've been doing already now, but I'm with Noah. I, I just think there are too many vested interests. I think the just the, the evidence is inherently going to be too uncertain because there's so much we don't know, thanks to uh, the, the way the CCP has handled this. So I'm a no. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode, the Bonson Group. The state of today's economy seems confusing, vulnerable, and even concerning to many, and that has widespread implications, not just for business owners, job seekers, and consumers, but also for investors. This is where our friends at the Bonson Group come in to provide solutions, clarity, and wisdom in the monetary, fiscal, and geopolitical instability of our day. Led by our own David Bonson, 
The Bonson Group manages over $4 billion of client capital and has become the leading independent private wealth management firm in the country, guiding investors to positive returns in 2022, even as the stock market wallowed in a bear market. Their deep commitment to dividend growth investing to a philosophical foundation that is not shaken and stirred by the headlines of the day warrant your attention. Check out DividendCafe.com. To learn more about the Bonson Group today, you'll find free weekly economic commentary at DividendCafe.com. And if you're interested in learning more about the Bonson Group, you can do so from that website. So go to DividendCafe.com for your antidote to the laziness and groupthink of today's index investing in sanity and discover a more bespoke and tailored solution worthy of your portfolio and financial needs. So, Noah, we've had this back and forth between the Biden administration and China, where the Biden administration, uh, in an echo of its warnings prior to the Russia invasion of Ukraine, where they were saying, yeah, you know what, they're going to invade Ukraine, we have intelligence, this is what they're going to do, et cetera, et cetera, are now saying a warning that China is going to arm Russia. We talked about this very briefly last week, but if this happens, and more broadly, what does the Russia-China alliance pretend for this, uh, the nature of this conflict and the geopolitical struggle uh, for control of the world? Well, it's interesting. Uh, th- first of all, these requests from Moscow for material support from Beijing are not new. Uh, the administration began sounding the alarm around this uh, of March of last year. It's been about, 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 uh, about a year. And um, they sent some pretty strong signals in China's direction, and China has not responded positively to Moscow's overtures yet. Um, that doesn't mean that they won't. And the administration is sounding really uh, agitated about this prospect. And they're talking about some marginally sophisticated weapons, these uh, kamikaze drones, which are basically just missiles, very similar to what Iran has been providing um, Moscow. And there's some early indications that Russia's really running out of ammunition. They're digging into 40-year-old stockpiles now for just serviceable ammo. Um, So it's getting close to the point at which they're going to need intervention before they have to start really contemplating cutting losses. China's not in in the business of being embarrassed, particularly by its junior partner in Eurasia, a, a nation that I think Beijing probably appropriately views as a future vassal state. Um, so these overtures with regard to ammunition also come, I think you can't analyze them independent of this um, idea of a Chinese proposed ceasefire deal and peace talks at least. Um, as I've written before, the conditions on the ground in Ukraine are far too fluid to be conducive to any kind of ceasefire talk. Both sides um, don't have a really a really good idea of what the other side's um, capacity to change the dynamics on the battlefield are, and the battlefield is what will determine the terms of those negotiations, so there's a lot of fighting yet to do. But China's interest here is to, insofar as it can, get control of this conflict and, be, and become an arbiter of this conflict. If it were to introduce offensive weaponry into Europe, that would be very destabilizing. Uh, that's that's probably a primary geostrategic objective of, from Washington to prevent that sort of an outcome. Uh, it would also really terrify our partners in the Pacific. They would have to come to terms with either a, a near-term conflict with China or make peace with China's rise and begin bandwagoning with the bully in their neighborhood, which neither of which would be to our to our interests and our advantage. So I understand what Washington's apprehension here is. Um, but it also doesn't seem like it's going anywhere in the near term, at least. I'm less nervous about the prospect of the introduction of offensive weaponry 
into uh, into uh, Europe via China today. That might change tomorrow because I also don't think it would change the dynamics on the battlefield very much. Russia's problem isn't that it just doesn't have the material to conduct this war. It doesn't have a non-commissioned officer corps. It doesn't have an independent uh, officer corps that can um, affect the kind of changes on the battlefield that they need. It doesn't have proper armor or air support. It doesn't have air superiority. All that stuff wouldn't be changed tomorrow by the introduction of these new weapons, and those are the biggest problems. It's not something to sneeze at. It's a real threat, um, but it also crystallizes in the minds, should crystallize in the minds of American policymakers, the degree to which the conflict in Europe and China's rise are not distinct problems. They're the same problem. The return of great power conflict and the challenges to American hegemony is one overarching problem, and it's a global problem. So, Jim, the New York Times had a piece today on this Russian offensive that everyone has been anticipating. And the thought was these kind of initial uh, assaults we've seen in the Donbass that haven't been hugely uh, meaningful but have you know, exacted a, a terrible cost on the Russian conscripts thrown into the maw this conflict that that was just uh, exploratory exploratory thrust and and a warm-up for the the big push to come now people begin to think actually russia doesn't have the capacity for a big push and this is this is the offensive yeah and i'd love for that to be the case uh certainly since you know the war began a little bit more than a year ago almost everything russia has tried has not lived up to the hype and the image of the Russian army being this uh, big, menacing, state-of-the-art. Uh, they, they've been ruthless. They've been brutal. They have done, you know, uh, unbelievable, you know, heartless, cruel attacks against Ukrainian civilians. But against guys who can shoot back, lo and behold, these, you know, conscripts and convicts and the, the Wagner group and all that stuff, they're just not nearly as effective as, uh, as the Russians hoped they were going to be. I'd love to see this, you know, end up in an absolute debacle that leaves, you know, uh, Russia licking its paws, the, the Russian bear licking its paws for a, you know, generation. I don't know if it's going to come out to that. And I do wonder if time, like, for, has, it was a weird kind of shift in the, the discussion over the last few weeks as people began to realize, yeah, you know, Russia's had some really severe casualties, you know, low estimate 100,000, high estimate 200,000. But you know, at some point, Ukraine runs out of guys. Ukraine undoubtedly has, you know, better technology because of what NATO has supplied. Undoubtedly, they're getting much more bang for their buck. But at some point, Ukraine just runs out of able-bodied men, and in some cases, women, who are capable of fighting for this. And the Ukrainian aim very much seems to be, we want to expel Russia from every last inch of our territory, including Crimea. And I think there are a bunch of NATO allies who look at that and say, eh, look, I understand why you want to feel that way, and why you want to do that. But you're probably not going to have the ability to do that. So, you know, if this is destined to end with Russia having paid an absolute severe price to gain some stretches of territory on the uh, eastern edge of Ukraine, you know, can we get there in six months? You know, Ukraine doesn't want to talk now and Russia doesn't want to talk now. Will they be ready to talk six months from now, nine months from now, a year from now, two or three years when those tanks, are the M181 Abrams tanks are supposed to arrive? I think, you know, a lot of people realize this ends in a less than perfect uh, conclusion, but neither of the combatants wants to hear that right now. So, Charlie, just uh, in the, the broadest gauge, you know, we were confronted by this uh, de facto alliance between two 
empires or former empires that are revanchist in their ambitions that driven by a deep resentment of the the West and fundamentally illiberal. And if you look at the advance guard of the West, which was uh, the Netherlands, the British, and us, it's always been thus, more or less. I'm reading a big book right now about the Spanish Armada, and you know neither Britain nor Spain at that time had uh, you know great appreciation for uh, human human rights or the niceties of the rule of law. But is is the the, the British were were tilting more that way than uh, the Spanish Empire, and this has just been the 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 story of of Anglo America re- resisting these big illiberal uh, continental powers. I always ask people who complain about American hegemony who they would like to take America's place. Anyone. Do they want Russia? Do they want China? Do they want France? The modern world, I think, is taken for granted by most people who live in free countries. They assume that it exists, that it is a force imposed from the outside, a law of the universe. And it's not. It is the result of 200 years or so of Anglo-American hegemony and of the British Empire in 1945 having handed over the baton to the United States seamlessly. We went from a world of British naval supremacy to a world of American naval supremacy. Now, the cast of characters that threaten this tends to change over time, but the nature of those threats don't. I am unapologetic in this regard. I think that a world led by really any country that was not Britain the United States, Canada, Australia would be a disaster. The sea lanes would close. The moral pressure would run in another direction. That's our choice. It's not the status quo or some idealized version of what a world would look like if you were creating it from scratch. It's the status quo... Or someone else. So, you know, this is this is the the perennial challenge, and it has been since the Battle of Waterloo. Push back Napoleon, and although it took a while to come to fruition, put the British in prime position, and I suspect it will be for the rest of my lifetime, and probably the lifetime of my children as well it's another reason why rich i worry about the nature of education at the moment that focuses in my estimation too much on the sins many of which are real that have been committed by the british and the americans historically that the question as opposed to what is Mm -hmm. not asked enough Sure, there are many ugly chapters in British history. There are many ugly chapters in American history too. As opposed to what? 
And I would say if you put the British and then the Americans, if you put the NATO alliance and its leaders up against pretty much any other country or set of countries, they look pretty good. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's, it's not even close compared to Russia and China and not even close compared to other countries in, in the West, you know, France and and Germany. So exit question to you, Noah, at the end of the day, whose strategic interest will best be served by the outcome? A lot of speculation in this ex- exit question. It's a daunting one. Uh, the, the outcome of the Ukraine war, the West's or China's? I, on its present, if I were to draw an inherently fallacious straight line trajectory, uh, trajectory from our present moment, I would say the, the West. Uh, in part, and I, briefly, I want to uh, note, you know, make a note of Jim's very appropriately sober, albeit dour, assessment of Ukraine's uh, capacity to resist here. Um, it's yes, they could run out of uh, manpower, um, but it's really Russia that has to worry about that in the near term. Russia is projecting bo- uh, power across its borders. Russia is emptying the prisons. Russia is relying on ultranationalist groups to uh, to recruit, con- not conscript, but recruit. And they're the ones that have to worry about fielding a conventional army in the near term. Um, it, before the invasion, the administration was talking about uh, supporting an insurgency inside Ukraine. And I have absolutely no doubt Ukraine would meet that measure in the event that it came to that, although it doesn't even seem like it's likely to come to that. And even if they were to set their sights on Crimea, agreed, very hard target, requires a lot of assets Ukraine can't deploy right now. But even if they were to put real pressure on the peninsula, it could open up that territory in a negotiated ceasefire deal that would also give Russia a face-saving way out. Maybe they have access to the Kerch Strait, maybe they have access to Sevastopol ports, but either way, they could put pressure on a lot of territories that would leave them open to a negotiated settlement. So, um, I have f- f- fears about Ukraine's long-term capacity to resist, but Russia's got more worries in the near term than Ukraine does. So um, it's a bad idea to extend these exit questions because it, it adds, <laughs> adds time. It's yeah. the reason why we end Sorry up going, going over an hour, but I can't resist. So, so Noah, so what is your guess if, if Russia is just stymied here? Let's just say, you know, what I was asking Jim about, it's, it's true that this is, this is all they got. You know, they're, they're exhausted and they're not going to make any major advances doing what they're doing now, what do they do then? Do, you, do they find a way and es- escalate in your mind? Or do they, they just go frozen conflict? At least we can exact a cost on Ukraine going forward? Or do they end up at a negotiating table? I mean, I think frozen conflict is the best option that they have right now. Something on Nagorno-Karabakh, South Ossetia, Transnistria sort of situation where it can be unfrozen, thawed out at, a, at Moscow's uh, leisure. Right now, they've, they're operating on a sunk cost fallacy and just throwing more and more resources into this fight, which is why China's intervention is really interesting. Beijing could put a lot of pressure on Moscow to cut its losses, try to seek some sort of negotiated n- negotiated settlement. And that would put the West in a really difficult position because they want that too. And it would be the Ukraine that would be holding out, at which point their support could erode in the West. So there's a lot of variables there. So, Jim, the, the end of the day, your guess that this this war will serve the strategic interests of the excuse me, the West or China? Uh, the West. You know, long term, yeah, this is going to you know decap. I'm going to say decimate because I know it means one out of every ten. This will basically eliminate Russia's military capacity on its the the, the flank facing Europe uh, for at least a decade, maybe a generation, and that will be a major strategic advantage to the U.S. and its allies. Charlie. 
I think the conflict will be frozen wherever it stops. I don't think you're going to see a negotiation because I think that in and of itself would look like losing face. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it might be a kind of a push. The, um, I mean, R Russia, assuming there's not some major breakthrough, is uh, been hurt in a, a really serious way by this, but it's been it's been costly in the West. And China, there's a lot of talk. Uh, we're waging a proxy war, you know, with Russia. Well, not really. I mean, we're doing the proxy part. Russia's doing the direct part. So advantage us, you know. And, and if all, all it takes is weapons and and money, whereas their you know their stuff is directly getting destroyed and their their people are getting uh, killed and and wounded, you'd, you'd rather be in in our situation, which is w one thing I think populist critics of, of the war. Um, are are missing, but China's in a proxy position. You know, th this is this is bleeding resources from the West, and China doesn't have to do anything except for perhaps we'll see more directly uh, aiding Russia. So I, I guess I would say my guess is it's to the advantage of the West at the end of the day, but um, it's not uh, it's not a free it's not a free deal for us. With that. Let's hear from our second sponsor this episode, Brian Garner's Modern English Usage from the Oxford University Press. Brian A. Garner, who many listeners will know from his regular column at National Review, is widely considered to be one of the preeminent authorities on grammar and style. The fifth edition, that's impressive by any measure, fifth edition of a style guide, Garner's Modern English Usage, is now available from Oxford University Press and is truly essential book for editors, writers, and anyone interested in writing more effectively. It's made up of over 7,000 entries, including over 1,000 new to this edition on writing topics ranging from how to use serial commas, the lost battle between self-deprecating and self-depreciating, and when it's okay to use the word literally to mean figuratively. Brian writes with real wit and humor in hopes that the book will help you sound, quote, grammatical but relaxed, refined but natural, correct but unpedantic, just like panelists on this very podcast. Garner's modern English usage can be purchased wherever books are bought. Please check it out. So, Charlie, want to get into some of the Iran DeSantis commentary. I know we talk a lot about Florida, but there's a lot going on and a lot of noise related to, to Florida and this idea that uh, DeSantis is more dangerous than Trump. Damon Linker, the independent-minded minded center-left writer, had a piece in the New York Times pushing back against this idea. But before we get to that, that general concept or notion, uh, let's go specifically to a couple things because obviously you follow this really closely. Disney. So wh where where have we ended up there? You, you're critical of what DeSantis did about a, a year ago and the stripping of the special district uh, from Disney and warned about the practical consequences if this special district were to be just absorbed by neighboring counties, you know, it'd be a heavy logistical lift and financial lift and all the rest of it. So DeSantis has ended up in this place where the special district is still going to exist, but it's been technically taken over by the, the state. So what, what's going on here? There were two criticisms that were leveled at DeSantis. I made one of them. The first post I wrote on this argued that this was clearly retaliatory. I still believe that. This was retaliatory. 
This was a response to Disney's criticism. It would not have happened absent that criticism, and it was sold, sometimes with a nod and a wink, by DeSantis and his team as a response to that criticism. And I oppose that. That is not how governments should behave toward private organizations. The second criticism that was leveled at DeSantis was that this change was illegal or that it would lead to a parade of horribles. I didn't advance that argument. I did defend the policy at it existed because I thought it worked. I still think it worked. Had it been left in place, it would have continued to work. But some people went further than I did, and they argued that if DeSantis and the state legislature dissolved Florida's special district, sorry, Disney's special district in Florida, the consequences for the counties in which that district sits, Orange County and Osceola County, would be disastrous. Now, that may well have been true, but what the legislature did and what DeSantis signed does not do that. Leaving aside the question of retaliation, which I maintain was inappropriate, the technical, practical solution at which the legislature arrived is elegant. In effect, it keeps Disney's special district in place, but instead of allowing that district to be run by figures appointed by and accountable to the Walt Disney Corporation, it permits the governor of Florida to appoint overseers who are accountable to the state. Now, in DeSantis's estimation, this is an important return to democracy. This is the abolition of special treatment for one corporation. I think you can look at it in a sinister way as well, frankly. At the press conference that DeSantis gave when he signed this, he said that the people who would be appointed to this board would be interested in Disney returning to being a family-friendly company. That's really not the role of the government, in my view. If Disney wants to be a family-unfriendly company, that's its own lookout. Either way, DeSantis has managed to follow through on what he promised while uh, avoiding the pitfalls that were supposed to come along with it, namely the transference of... uh, tax and debt liabilities to the taxpayers in Orange County and Osceola County. So, you know, this is, I suppose, a compromise of sorts. It's a way of avoiding the various legal problems. It's a way of keeping some of the benefits of this special district, which was set up for good reason, uh, without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But it doesn't, for me, solve the underlying problem. And that underlying problem was that this was a targeted action taken at a company that had criticized Florida's legislative policy. There is nothing wrong per se with the state of Florida changing, altering, or abolishing its special district program. But it didn't do that. Florida still has 2,000 of these. There are various special use cases in Florida that require creative thinking, that don't fall into the typical county government 
system that obtains here and in most other states. The Space Center in Cape Canaveral, the airport in Orlando, the villages. You know, these are difficult uh, political and governmental questions that have been answered in Florida more often than not with the establishment of a special district. Those have all stayed in their current incarnation. Why? Because they didn't criticize Florida. So, you know, I think it's important here to separate out that question, which is, can Florida do this? Yes. Which is, did Disney get special treatment relative to, say, Universal Studios? Yes. And is this solution that the legislature has contrived elegant? Did it stave off some of the, uh, the big issues? Yes. Should it have happened? No, because it was a direct response to criticism and, in my estimation, is therefore retaliatory, and I don't think government should be doing that. So, Jim, let's widen it out and go to this notion that DeSantis is more dangerous than Trump. If you're on the center left or even if you're on the, the right, you know, there, there are things that uh, you you can disagree with um, that DeSantis has done, you know, sending the uh, bogus asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard. Some of these education reforms have uh, First Amendment um, concerns about them. He's talking about changing uh, libel law, et cetera, et cetera. But you, you just look at that and you don't get anything close to what Trump does you know, on the, on the average day. I mean, Trump lies all the time. He advances conspiracy theories all the time. He uh, lodges uh, insults at, at people that deeply un, unworthy of a, a dog catcher, let alone a president or former president of the United States, Coco Chow, you know, now topping the list. Yet you have progressives, and, and there's just been, must be a dozen of them or more now, pieces saying that DeSantis is more of a threat than Trump, by which they, they basically mean that they, they worry he'd be more electable and more effective. Um, I wrote something for the Post last fall, and there are a lot of folks who, who fit in that category, Rich, but I think Jamel Bowie of the Times may have set a, a record when he pointed out that DeSantis didn't have Trump's charm and easy likability. And if you're sitting there thinking, wait, why is a New York Times columnist on the left telling me about Trump's charm? And like, where, where was all of this during Trump's presidency? Um, to the typical progressive, yes, Ron DeSantis is, and I'm making air quotes as I say this, more dangerous because Ron DeSantis has a better chance of winning a general election than Donald Trump does. And Ron DeSantis has a much better odds of becoming an effective conservative president who gets a lot done than Donald Trump is. So yes, by that standard, but in terms of more dangerous for the country, uh, no, that's absolutely absurd. You know, it's really, you know, if, if you know what's going to happen if Ron DeSantis loses the election, which I hope doesn't happen. Ron DeSantis will mutter and be frustrated and he'll give a concession speech and the Democratic president will take the oath of office and life will go on. There will not be a January 6th. There will not be talk. Of, I mean, you know, people may talk about a national divorce. There will not be any attempted insurrections, any attempted coups, any attempt to violently resist the election of the result, the election results. You can't make that guarantee with Donald Trump. Donald Trump run, wins the nomination, runs for you know, runs for president again, and loses. Particularly if he loses close, God only knows what the heck, the heck that maniac's going to do. And that could be really get, could get really bad, could get really ugly. January sixth was really bad, but it could get even worse, right? Don, Ron DeSantis isn't going to do that, 
And that by itself should be a giant glaring sign to everybody on the left. Hey, you know what happens if Ron DeSantis gets elected? You hate him like a normal Republican president. Like mm-hmm. all, you know, you know, Reagan, Bush, George W. Bush. You're used to that. You don't have to worry about somebody trying to lead a violent insurrection or bombing a country because he's in a bad mood or some other, uh, you know, going on some angry, unhinged tirade on social media or using racial slurs to describe his own former cabinet secretary. Like, Or trying to spend 4% of GDP. I'm oh, sorry, that's a different president. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, Noah, how do you think about this aspect of, of DeSantis? We haven't heard much about uh, from you about DeSantis, because you've only been on the podcast three times, including once as a as a guest host um, l- last week. Um, so th- there was this kind of pre-announcement kind of video they put out uh, a few few days ago, and the key word in that video was freedom. You know, Nikki Haley's announcement video, the key word was freedom. Yet, especially with DeSantis, you've had this uh, tilting towards the populist wing of the party, when asked about Ukraine, DeSantis gave, in, in my mind, a totally predictable answer, but but one clearly uh, designed in political terms just not to take any flack from, from the populist right by sounding too hawkish on Ukraine. He's gone out of his way to associate himself uh, with uh, media figures and influencers that are on the the populist right. So 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 how different is DeSantis from a conventional Republican and how much does that delight or concern you? It's interesting. I don't I don't know if I know what a conventional Republican is these days. Mm-hmm. I suppose Ron DeSantis is about as close as it gets to one, a conventional Republican in the sense that he was conventional when con- when conservatism was conventional and populist when populism was conventional. Uh, in that sense, he's a capable, competent politician, uh, but also one who knows where the center of gravity in the party is, um, which renders him a threat. And it's one that the left clearly recognizes. And they do this some, to themselves all the time. The New York Times published a book review of DeSantis's The Courage to Be Free, which is his book that just recently came out. Jennifer Cizali, Cizali um, reviewed it. And she determined that it was at once a dry, boring vehicle for a, center, a, a political figure's national ambitions, but also a vision of a future of a country that is unfree and scary, and she applies all the passion and vigor she possibly can summon to denouncing it. These two things are incompatible, and it's in a window into the psyche of people in the political press, particularly on the left, who draft themselves into a, a, a mission to affect political outcomes, to shape political outcomes, not do the job, but to change how you think about things and possibly alter how you vote. Uh, and it always backfires on them. They, they, the amount of zeal that they apply to that mission uh, at the expense of their actual mission uh, does them no favors. I'm of Charlie's mind when it comes to a lot of these culture war fights. Some of them are just wastes of our time. Um, some of them are down to his benefit. Not all of them do. The most effective example was the, as you say, the shipping of migrants. For the low, low price of a plane ticket, it turns out you can get every Democratic official in America to articulate all the things that Republicans have said about immigration policy in this country for 20 years. It's a brilliant mm-hmm. stroke. Um, but not all of them have uh, that have redounded to Ron DeSantis's benefit. And yet all of them keep him in the news. He's a very effective uh, in that sense. And it 
has nothing to do with his lack of sense of humor or warmth or uh, you know hu- evidence of human compassion. He's he's an effective political operator in the absence of those kind of qualities, which I do think he kind of lacks, at least on the on the on the superficial level. Um, and it's probably no obstacle to his political performance. Um, so, I mean, I'm a very mixed mind on where Ron DeSantis is. But one thing you can't say about the guy is that he's not a really competent, capable, effective political mm-hmm. figure. And that's terrified his, his opponents, as it should. They should do a better job of not letting it show. So, Charlie Cook, X question to you. This is something we keep coming back to, taking people's temperature on. In terms of winning the Republican nomination at the moment, you would rather be Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis? I would rather be Ron DeSantis. Jim Garrity. DeSantis, but I think Trump uh, obviously will not go quietly, and I don't know if it's quite as certain as I felt a few months ago. Noah. This is a very tough one. If things continue to evolve as they've evolved over the course of this year, DeSantis. But you have to wonder how things shake out in the early states. I think Donald Trump has a pretty good showing in places like New Hampshire and Iowa. And if you get a mixed verdict in South Carolina, the momentum could shift pretty quickly. Uh, Wow, this has yielded so much sighing. Yeah, I'm going to do do a, a, a MBD sigh coupled with a Charlie Cook pause. <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, the, this Fox poll, there's a Fox News poll came out a couple of days ago. It looked looked pretty good for for Trump. So I, I, I might say Trump just just because his level of support is kind of proven. It may, maybe has further to fall, but. Given everything that's happened, given how terrible the announcement was and, and the, the announcement follow-up was, and he, he still had, you know, maybe it was just name ID and people don't really mean it, but I'm, uh, I'm not sure. So I, I might say Trump just because uh, there's a question mark around DeSantis. I, I take everything that Noah was saying about his, his, uh, his abilities and, and how well he's handled himself for his purposes um, here last couple of years ago, uh, last couple of years, and you know, governed Florida very well. Um, but what 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 is he like as a, a national political figure actually out there on the hustings? We just we just don't know where there is some some level, and this is also an unknown, unknown. We don't know exactly where it is, which is obviously a key question. But there's some floor there for for Trump that you know it's somewhere probably between 35 and 50. You know, maybe is it between 25 and 50? I'd be delighted if it were, but I'm not so sure. So I'm going to tip it. I think it's really a close call, but tip it to Trump. With that, let me do a quick plug for our webathon going on as we speak at nationalreview.com. I did a post yesterday. Charlie has one up today on how we've just uh, uh, blown blown the whistle again and again on Biden's student loan forgiveness program and had such excellent uh, content on that from, from Charlie and from others. So if you value what we do, if you go to National Review and read regularly, do us a, a, a big favor, do the cause a big favor, do this institution a, a big favor and chip in something. Doesn't have to be a lot. Every little bit counts and it all adds up. So whether it's $5 or $5,000, we will be immensely 
grateful. So please check it out. And if you can, open your wallet. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. So Jim, you are looking forward to getting together with some old friends in a couple months. Yeah. So these are friends who I guess we got together before the pandemic. Obviously, it's been a bunch of years. Uh, some are college friends, some are immediately after college, and we're now scattered to the four winds. And so we've finally made plans. We're going to get together uh, at a kind of a ski resort up in Canada uh, this summer. They're going to do like little raceways down the uh, down the uh, the uh, ski slopes when there's no snow there. And I just found myself just thinking about it more and more. Um, and I think as I get older, I appreciate old friends and the you know, the sense that you, the folks who are with you year by year, decade by decade, and uh, how, you know, life will pull you apart, put you, you know, geographical and other psychological space between you. And then you get back together and it's like no time has passed at all. So that's been on my mind quite a bit lately. Very nice. So Noah, you recently consumed some sort of beet cocktail, which sounds even more disgusting than the bowl of instant mashed potatoes drenched with butter that I posted an <laughs> image of yesterday on Twitter and got a lot of blowback. Well, I heard it's amazing delicious, though. what catches on. <laughs> it, it was delicious, actually. <laughs> it is delicious. So so was the beet cocktail. I, my <laughs> surprise. It was, it was very sweet. Maybe, and it had, ne- maybe next lunchtime I'm going to combine the two. Do it. It also had horseradish in it, which kind of changed my views on Bloody Marys. I can't stand Bloody Marys. And the conventions around them where people throw like a whole salad bar and like a fried chicken wing on top of it. It's just ridiculous. I love, I love horseradish. And it's very it's good. And in a beet cocktail, you don't think it would work. But it totally worked. I'm going to be juicing beets in the very near future. Awesome. So, Charlie, you got some uh, one of your sons is in, in involved in a very uh, stiff golf competition down there in Florida, trying to make the cut. Yeah, my six-year-old is a good golfer, and he's really into it, which he should be, given that we live in golf world, and he plays. And he doesn't just have his little golf lessons but he plays in these little golf tournaments against three or four other people and usually he does it while i'm away or i'm working but the last one i was here and so i offered to take him myself so i was his driver drove the golf cart around always loved doing that and i was his caddy i carried his golf bag and given my extremely limited knowledge and the fact he only has three clubs i suggested which ones that he should use at each point and it was just so much fun <laughs> they look so you're like whispering cute. in his ear to take you're, you're you're determining which way the wind is blowing and what what iron he should use no but there is a role to play in saying don't rush it no you don't need to rush it just take your time that's the key that's the thing that makes the big difference were, were you wearing like a a, a white uh, pantsuit with cook on the on the back no no i wasn't i was, <laughs> I was wearing nicer clothes because you're not allowed on the golf course in jeans and a t-shirt but i didn't have the full caddy outfit he didn't tip me afterwards either which i thought was extremely <laughs> so i uh, went skiing uh last last week i'm not much of a skier but um it is fun to be out in the slopes kind of a different environment different way of moving and uh takes your mind off everything else so it's not west coast skiing i know some some people have contempt for anything on the uh on the east coast but still a lot of fun with that it's time for our editor's picks jim garrity what's your pick so a little while back i wrote about the chicago mayor's race and one of our newer I should say more of our new regular contributors. He's been uh, 
hosting political beats for a long time and popping up in the corner every now and then. But Jeffrey Blahar lives in Chicago, and I think he had written something saying, look, there are no good guys in the Chicago mayor's race, just only various degrees of bad guys. And look, I'm here in Virginia. He's out in Chicago. And I really wanted him to kind of weigh in and offer that local perspective from somebody who's right of center and who I think has realistic expectations of what can be achieved by a Chicago mayor from the perspective of a conservative. So really, which Democrat is least bad? And so just as we were having our, our chat here on the, in the taping, uh, Jeff has posted chaos reigns in the Chicago mayoral race. The good news is that it looks like Lori Lightfoot is on her way out. It's not sure who's going to replace her. Um, read Jeff, get up to speed on the Chicago's mayor's race, because it's possible we're seeing something of an upset in the coming days. No, Rothman, what's your pick? Uh, Nate Hockman's Science on Stolen Land. Um, where he talked about the degree to which the National Science Foundation, pursuant to Joe Biden's uh, DEI executive order, is compelling uh, people to issue these indigenous land acknowledgments, which are just this really silly, self-effacing display where you have to say what indigenous peoples occupied the land you're presently on before you continue with proceedings. They're, They're silly, but not superficial. And Nate's right insofar as these statements constitute an assault on the legitimacy of the United States itself. And uh, in that sense, they are, they, sh- they are intolerable and should be intolerable. So go read Nate. Charlie Cook, what's your pick? My pick is your piece. Don't rewrite books, which you'd think would be obvious, but apparently is not. And you asked the same question I asked yesterday, though in a different way, which is where does it end? Really, when you start reading some of the great works of history, those that are out of copyright you come to the conclusion that if Roald Dahl required sensitivity reading, then good Lord, does Chaucer mm-hmm. or William Shakespeare. Now, I know people say, ah, but that's different. Yes, it is different. Those are out of copyright. The publisher has far less control because they're dealing with a work that is open to all. But the instinct's the same. If we take at face value all of this sensitivity reading then theater troops will start cutting out lines from Macbeth and Othello and Hamlet willy-nilly because they won't want to perform them in front of other people who might be misled. And as you point out in this piece, this is a cultural question at root, not a copyright question. This is cultural vandalism. And irrespective of whether or not we can stop it, which we largely can't and largely should not be able to, We should be outraged about it, and we should discourage it. So thanks very much, Charlie. Uh, My pick is actually your piece on this topic, uh, (laughs) making the point that you got to go after Shakespeare if this is the road we're going down, which influenced um, my uh, my my column. So the the endless feedback loop is is going here. Uh, and and actually, you know, this is not a theoretical question because we get the the word boulderized from Thomas Boulder, who he and his sister boulderized Shakespeare. They wanted to create a, a family friendly version of Shakespeare. He had the best of intentions. You know, he he loved Shakespeare, but but he uh, ruined Shakespeare at the same time. And we were talking yesterday when we were actually comparing notes on this that uh, you know how do you fix Othello? And he he really tried to fix Othello, but realized he just 
he just really couldn't. So, so he took a bunch of stuff out, but also had a, a preface to uh, his version of, of Othello saying, actually, uh, good family, you might just want to keep this one out of the reach of the, of the kids no <laughs> yeah. matter what. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express red permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thanks to Charlie. Thanks to Jim. Thanks to Noah. Thanks to the Bonson Group and the latest edition of Brian Garner's Impressive Grammar Guide. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.